Danger, welcome Will Robinson. Fi Danger. <laughs> Gotta start off with that. Uh, welcome <laughs> to Fiery Discourse, your podcast and media featuring dragonesses, female dinosaurs, and other similar swords and skillies. I'm your host, Ludmillanon, and with me are my co-hosts, Angron, Lucky Evie, Striker, Jordan, and Matt Machine. Today is our 48th episode, and we're discussing the 1967 Lost in Space episode, The Questing Beast. So, let's get things started. Yep. So, uh, uh, Lost in Space uh, starred in 1965, and it was somewhat based on Forbidden Planet, which is a very classic uh, 50s sci-fi movie that, if you haven't seen it, I recommend it. Robbie the Robot uh, came from that movie, and he actually appeared on Lost in Space. It also was mm. partially based on uh, the, the uh, classic story Swiss Family Robinson, who is probably best remembered today for from the um, uh, Walt Disney movie. Nice. And, Lost in Space basically started off as a serious science fiction show, much like uh, its contemporary series of the time, Star Trek. But by this time, by season two, Lost in Space had gotten increasingly sillier and sillier, thanks to competition from uh, Adam West Batman. And at this point, uh, the show basically became the uh, Dr. Smith and uh, Will Robinson show. Uh, what happened is that uh, Dr. Smith was actually going to be killed off in the first few episodes, but Jonathan Harris gave such a performance that he became the main star, basically. It's like what happened on uh, Family Matters with Urkel. That's what yeah. happened with uh, Dr. Smith. He basically yeah, took I over the that. whole show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thankfully, he was not as annoying as Urkel. Ooh, the beard. I, I don't hate Urkel. Ooh, the beard. But yeah. Uh, Dr. Smith and the Robot, like I say, basically the show became the Dr. Smith, Will, and Robot show at this point. The rest of the adult characters didn't really have anything to do, and they apparently would fight each other behind the scenes over screen time and who got the most amount of lines and scripts. So, oh, dear. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was not oh. a fun set, apparently. But thankfully, uh, the show is still a pretty fun one overall. Um, the episode basically begins, uh, as most of them do, with Dr. Smith uh, loafing around while ro the robot and Will Robinson work. And Dr. Smith's uh, colorful insults to the robot, you bubble-headed booby, you tin can, titanium, titanic thing of junk, stuff like that. They were always were so funny, you know? And, yeah, uh, yeah, we, I'll bet. Yeah, and of course we got to talk about the, uh, the robot who looks absolutely incredible for 1960s television. Uh, most of the budget... Pretty iconic. Uh, yeah, most of the budget on Lost in Space... Went to the robot, and you could tell this thing looks fantastic. Even today, it still looks really, really good. And the robot is voiced by uh, Dick Tufeld, who is also, believe it or not, the announcer for uh, Walt Disney's television show. Fun fact there. Oh. So basically, uh, mm -hmm. so basically, uh, Will and the robot are basically working on building an atomic, uh, you know, shield and that. While Smith is just, you know, lying around. And then all of a sudden, a knight appears. And he stumbles around all over the place. And and uh, Dr. Smith's panicked reaction over the night is just, it's perfect. You know, he really was the best part of this show by a wide margin. And I feel like, you know, he really took uh, what could have been a very, you know, one-note character. And he made it his own. Especially with uh, things we'll see with him later on in this episode. 
But for now, uh, we get to see the knight who claims his name is uh, Sir Sagramante, and he charges at the group. Uh, Dr. Smith basically begs the robot to do something, but the robot actually can't hurt him for a reason that we'll find out uh, in a little while, which is a pretty clever one, especially, again, for 1967 television. Here we get a uh, really funny part with uh, Sagramante thinking the robot is another knight, and... Dr. Smith's reaction to Sagramonte calling him a varlet is also really funny, just how offended he gets over it. Actually, this cool. makes me think, since you mentioned the robot, uh, this was before uh, Laws of Robotics, wasn't it? With uh, Astro Boy. I think Asimov had already written iRobot by the time, so I think they had come into existence, but... Probably just barely, and they actually do reference that, believe it or not. I was going to mention that later, but we'll talk about it now. That the robot can't attack Sagramonte because of the three laws, which, again, for 1960s television, uh, that is something that is really, really clever. That is clever. Made in 1950, so even by 20, almost 20 year later standards, it's still relatively unknownish. So for it to be in a sci fi okay. is okay. pretty impressive. Yeah. That is okay. I apologize for that. No, 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 no. It's all good. It's all good. We then get a, a nice joke with the Sagramonte wanting to hold them ransom, but the robot can't pay, obviously. And Sagramonte then is suggests decapitating them, but Smith saves them by suggesting that he takes them hostage. And in one of the few pieces of noble things that Doctor Smith does in this episode, he offers himself instead of Will, but Sagramonte decides to take them both. Then uh. we get uh, Sagramonte summoning his uh, hound, which. Wears glasses for some reason, and it's weird, it's but it's 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 goofy, and I kind of yeah, like it. A lot of a lot of the weird jokes in Lost in Space aren't really funny. They're just stuff I think that Irwin Allen, the producer of the show, thought would be funny, so I basically demanded that they would put it in there. But it's here we yeah. uh, get. Yep, it's here we get the theme song, which was done by one Mister John Williams in one of his first major uh, musical performances. Believe it or not. He per- scored the music to uh, Lost in Space. That was one of his uh, first jobs. And uh, the opening theme uh, animation is really cute as well with it on floating past the uh, flying saucer and that. And again, it's really funny how Jonathan Harris is listed as being the special guest star when by this time, he was the main protagonist. Yep. Mm. Yeah, at, at this point, I might as well have said starring Jonathan Harris, but it always said special guest star Jonathan Harris in every single episode. Hmm, that's interesting. But yeah, so uh, after the credits, we get to see uh, back on the Jupiter 2, we see uh, Will's parents are worried about him not being there. Uh, Will's father, John, is played by Guy Williams, who is probably best known for being Zorro on the uh, Disney TV show. And, oh, uh, one thing I forgot to mention, too, is Sagramonte is played by uh, Hans Conrad, who did a lot of TV, a lot of uh, a lot of movies in that. Today, he's probably best remembered for voicing uh, Captain Hook in uh, Walt Disney's Peter Pan. Oh, oh yeah. he looks familiar. You hear his voice when he is speaking. Yeah, yeah, he, he voiced uh, Captain Hook in Disney's Peter Pan. That's so probably the, the thing he's... The same night voiced the same uh, freaking... So, he even okay. uses the Captain Hook voice so much that I was just waiting for him to scream, Smee! The Disney uh, trick-or-treat uh, Halloween thing, he did the mirror from Snow White. 
Oh, that's oh. neat. I didn't know that. That's really, really cool. Oh. Yeah, well, I could definitely see him doing it. But yeah, uh, we got some really funny uh, comedic moments here with Smith uh, chopping wood and the logs just flying all over the place. And basically what happens is uh, Sagramante basically says Will is going to be his page in that. Will goes into his tent to look for gauntlets only to find Dr. Smith hiding there where it's Smith was basically a huge coward, so he would hide uh, instead of trying to face monsters head on, basically. And Smith basically says that he's looking for how Sagramonte got there, and if he has a spaceship, then the Robinsons can basically leave to return home. And they say that they'll borrow the ship, despite Will basically saying that's stealing. So it's evident that uh, Dr. Smith got his ideas of borrowing from Mr. Krabs. <laughs> exactly! <laughs> Yeah. It's not stealing if you if you're going to give it back. <laughs> yeah. uh, classic, but yeah, Man. Will is basically conflicted about betraying uh, Sagramonte, and he tries teaching Will to use his sword. But in a funny moment, it's so heavy that Will basically collapses to the ground. And again, uh, Hans Conrad, he was mostly known as a comedic actor, but he really does a pretty good, uh, somewhat pathos of the character as well. He plays Sacramonte as a man who has to find the beast out of a sense of duty, and he wants to really, like, uh, truly perform a great deed. I think it's also boistered by the fact that uh, Billy Moomy, who played Will Robinson, he's also probably best known for the Twilight Zone episode, you know, You're a bad man! You're a bad man! I'm wishing you to the cornfield! That was him. Well, I'm taking you to the cornfield tonight. Yeah, but basically, uh, he was a really good child star. He was really natural, and he turned out pretty all right by child star standards, too. But, yeah, uh, he, he really plays off uh, Hans Conrad with a real sort of wonder that later becomes a dislu- disillusionment as the episode goes on. Yeah. And we really get to see uh, a lot of good uh, moments for him as well. But, yeah, uh, Smith basically whines. He uh, is forced to drag branches on the ground. Is also hilarious. And then, uh, nice. Will basically asks Sacramonte how he knows that uh, Grundmar, the dragon, is there. And the knight responds that he's transported against his will to different planets uh, that Grundmar is at, and he doesn't have a spaceship at all. And one thing that's really amazing is just how dignified uh, Sacramonte can be one second, and the next he's just uh, so comical. It really, again, shows what a good performance Hans Conrad puts in on this. Indeed. Which again adds to the whole Captain Hook comparison because that is one to one hook right there. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, yep. basically, uh, what happens next is uh, Smith then suggests about sneaking back to the Jupiter 2 when he finds out that uh, Sacramonte doesn't have a ship. But Will doesn't want to leave because he wants to learn more about the ideals that Sacramonte told him about. Again, with this little you know, boyish like wonder and that. There's a really yeah. cute uh, comedy moment with a Smith lamenting that he has to eat the leftovers from Sagramonte's table. And Sagramonte wakes up and basically Smith says, you know, oh, it's nothing, it's nothing, go back to sleep. Uh, again, oh, it's eats. nothing, go back to sleep. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But yeah, basically Smith then sneaks away from Sagramonte's camp, but then he's followed by Gundamar. And it's here where we first get to really see her, and her appearance is very, very odd. She yep. has, is she's a pink scale dragoness. She has like a Eastern style whiskers, which is unusual on a dragoness like this. She has what appears to be like webbed hands, and she wears a bow because they have to signify that you know Gundamar is a dragoness, I guess. And a girl, exactly. And it clearly, clearly is a person in a suit. 
You know, oh, it's like, yeah. you know, it's not even trying to be like, you know, going on all fours and things like that. No, it's no, no. A guy hey, in a costume. I laughed so hard at this yeah. <laughs> when I first saw it. It's like, that's exactly. a dragon? Exactly, it's, yeah, it's yeah. It's not just that it's a person in a suit. It's a person in a suit that has been put through the washing machine five different times and is held <laughs> together by tape and prayer. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we will get to that about uh, Gundamar's suit, what happens with it uh, later on in the episode. But... One thing I will say that is absolutely uh, pretty interesting with this, or absolutely amazing, actually, is the part where how Gundamar shoots fire from her mouth. How did they do that effect? Because the flames are not composited in, which would have been very obvious uh, in 1960s television with today's uh, modern computers and that. You'd be able to tell that. It looks like like they have like a suit with like a built-in flamethrower head thing or something. I don't know I how they did it, but it actually looks pretty decent. I want to agree with you that the way they did the flame th for her breath when there's a scene that I don't want to spoil ahead, but there's a scene where you f see fire coming out, and I'm like, that's got to be like some kind of weird flamethrower uh, stand, and they just hit a button to make it blow out like she's there. Yeah. Oh, hands that, down. Yeah, yeah this is yeah, the weird thing about Lost in Space is that they really put a lot of detail into the special effects to the point where they had no money for costumes or outfits or anything else, and it exactly, shows. Exactly, exactly. They blew all their budget on, I think, the Jupiter 2 model and the robot, because the robot, they had, I think, like 10 of those things. It you looks know, almost like, like a Dalek replica, but it's not. It almost has the same, well, not say, well, maybe the same height, but it looks like a better prototype of a Dalek from the first Doctor Who style, but not... Eh. Yeah, now that you mention it, in yeah. a way, yeah, yeah, I definitely, definitely can see that. But yeah, basically, what happens? Uh, Smith, of course, sees Gundamar, and as usual, he screams in fear, which wakes up Sacramonte and Charles's dog. It turns out when Good the dog. dog starts howling, it means that Gundamar is near. Sacramonte attempts to suit up before he runs off into the distance, and he promptly smacks against a rock. <laughs> again, it's a little bit of good slapstick here. This episode yeah. does have a lot of uh, good moments to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Even if it's a little tacky sometimes. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And believe me, the show would only get weirder and weirder as it went along. And we'll talk about that after this episode, just how bizarre it would get. But yeah, uh, the next morning, the robot then rolls up to the Jupiter 2 and he tells uh, John what happened with uh, Will and Dr. Smith, the unknown. And again, the fact that it showed this silly uh, acknowledges that the robot could, couldn't hurt Sagramante because of the three laws is, is clever. Again, for 67... A show like this, silly, that could have just come up with anything. The fact that they actually acknowledge something as science fiction like that is pretty creative. Excuse me. It is very creative, actually. Indeed. Yeah. So then uh, Don West, who was the second in command uh, of the show, he basically tells them that there's no sign of a ship on the planet and they'll get uh, weapons to look for it. Uh, Penny, who was the youngest daughter of the Robinson family, she asks where they're going and then uh, Marine, the mother, tells her to not go too far from the ship. Penny, of course, doesn't obey her, and she leaves, only to find Sacramonte's dog, and she follows her. She follows the uh, dog into the distance. And we then cut back to Will, who engages in some pretty decent slapstick with a helmet and a spear, both uh, not fitting him and being too heavy, respectfully. And then he finds a Sacramonte sleeping under his shield. Uh, Sacramonte claims that he found Gundamar last night, that he tried to attack him, but he was blown away by an enchanted wind, and... Will is basically confused at this, trying to tell Sagramonte that there's no such thing like that. 
And then he tells him that his dog got away. And Sagamonte then claims, oh, his dog was enchanted too. Then he collapses uh, down. And he says he's too tired to hunt the dragon, despite Will trying to get him to continue the hunt. Uh, Penny, meanwhile, is, of course, following Sagamonte's dog. And then she hears a voice. It turns out to be Gundamar herself, who has a bit of a light British accent. And uh, it's here we actually get to hear what Gundamar sounds like. Now, Gundamar is voiced by legendary voice actress June Foray, who mm. was an absolute icon. She was Rocky and Rocky and Bullwinkle. She was the grandmother in Looney Tunes. Basically, if you had seen a cartoon from like the 1940s to like the 2010s, there, there were good odds that you saw something with June Foray in it. Mm, that's interesting. She, she was an absolute yeah. legend of a voice actress. Yeah, another interesting tidbit is that uh, Bill Mundy had a, uh, had a daughter who would later go on to voice Panini and Chowder and Le- and Lenny oh, yeah. Loud. Yeah, yeah, in, uh, yeah, Liliana Mumi, that, that's his daughter. Yep. Yeah, and Lenny Loud in the Loud House. So, huh, a lot of, yeah. of freaking uh, yeah, talent there in the family. In yep. Yeah, yep. a lot of descendants so in the family. <laughs> so yeah, basically what happens is uh, with her voice, she gives the character a lot of dignity Maybe a little too much dignity because you have this like elegant, like British dower just kind of voice coming out of this absolutely ridiculous character design, which gives it a little bit of an unintentional sort of comedic feel to it, I think. Mm. Yeah, the, the fact that they have this like, yeah, you know, elegant voice coming out of this costume that is visibly, visibly like, you know, falling yeah. at the seams. When Gundamar speaks, her mouth. Uh, it barely even opens and closes. It's like they had problems even moving the mouth. It like moves like maybe an inch when it speaks. When, when the this ain't Jim Henson's uh, Creature Factory, I can tell you that. Yeah, no, this, oh, is, this yeah. is terrible. I mean, I mean, uh, Star Trek too didn't have good effects, but at least Star Trek had like uh, stories and ways to get around it. Whereas here, the effects are front and center, so it's like uh, yeah, what you see is what you get. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And again. I like how uh, Gundamar's personality is that of a culture and refined woman, which is a fun little twist on things. But it's here where I realize something about this episode at this moment that I actually paused and I had to write down my notes. This episode is basically just the reluctant dragon. Oh, hell yeah. I really see that hands down. Except it has a little more detail to it and it has a little more character development, but I will take the reluctant dragon over this personally oh definitely yeah yeah I, I could definitely see that because that is like great animation and this unfortunately does not have near as good effects but in some way it's, it's cute as well but yeah Gundamar herself, as good as the reluctant dragon oh yeah that that would have been and that's the thing too why didn't they just use animation with her I mean, okay, it wouldn't have been like you know Disney film quality, but it wouldn't have been that it couldn't have been that that expensive. I think you know. Yeah. Correct. So anyway, uh, what happened is a uh, I really like how Gundamar. She really is such a fun character. She's really weary about Sagramonte constantly hunting her, and how she basically bonds with Penny about learning about life in general. We then get another weird moment where Gundamar then teleports in a puff of smoke and an explosion to get closer to Penny, but she only moved like a few feet away. Like she's sitting on a rock and then she teleports and then she's right next to her. It's like she couldn't have just gotten up and walked over. It really wasn't that far of a distance. I like to think that that was just showing that she could do that. True, true. 
But yeah, uh, it's here that uh, we get to see uh, like Gundamar's tail. It looks more like a rat tail than like uh, a dragon's in that. Just the way yep. like they, they made it way too thin, basically. And, and it's here yeah. that we get uh, the Gun the part with the Gundamar suit, the part around like the shoulder blades and like the armpits. It is clearly falling apart because that is oh, a different yeah. color than the rest of the suit. Like 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 they did some test footage and it fell apart, so that they desperately scrambled to try and make this thing stay on while they recorded this episode. But yeah, no, uh, I think that the audience might start to get that uh, this didn't look good. Yeah, no, I I think we might have to say it a couple more hundred times that. <laughs> but yeah, no, unfortunately, oh, yeah, yeah. Gundamar's design is what drags her down because her personality is really good. I like how, again, uh, she walks together with Penny and she tries telling her that if she told her parents about Gundamar that uh, they'd probably go hunting after her and she doesn't want to have to deal with that at this stage. And she's so proud to be basically a, a proper lady type. And again, for a dragoness, it is really, really a fun little bit of characterization right oh, there. Oh, hell yeah. Hands yeah. down, that is easily one of the best aspects about her. Like, she's, she's very proud of being who she is. In spite of, you know, being a freaking beast, but she very honestly, again, this hammers back down to the parallels that the reluctant dragon has because both are pretty much the same sort of thing. However, unlike the reluctant dragon, who's very much uh, content on being at by himself, ultimately just being who he is, not necessarily being a dragon, but being just like an individual. Here, she leans a little more into the bestial aspect, and honestly, by the end, I'm not going to spoil the twist just yet, but man, does it kind of feel like she just wants to get laid or something like that? I mean... I got that vibe, too. Yeah, yeah that's, that's <laughs> You know who you are, man. You that's know who you are. You definitely can read into it that way, yeah. But uh, what happens is uh, basically uh, Gundamar, uh, that she then, uh, basically Penny demands that uh, Gundamar tells her why, uh, where they're going, or she won't continue to go with Gundamar. She, Gundamar then laments about, oh, the younger generation these days, which again, a funny little joke. And then she basically tells him what we, her, what we know about Sacramonte, and it's just that even Gundamar doesn't know why Sacramonte is hunting her, and that he's been doing it for over 40 years, and again... June Foray's portrayal here is just so good. It really, really is. As he plays Gundamar as this, like, you know, world-weary, yet, you know, proper lady type. And it really doesn't a disservice that the face is just so inarticulate at this point. You know, it's like it's mm. frozen on, like, you know, one expression. And it really is a shame because her performance is doing all the heavy lifting, I feel. Yeah. Kind of. It, it, it felt like she was like carrying the episode. To be honest, yeah, I, that too, that too. You could you could make that argument as well. But then uh, Gundamar basically claims that she's been trying to keep ahead of uh, Sagramonte for so long that she's afraid that he'll eventually catch up to her and potentially decapitate her. She claims that she tried to approach his camp last night to talk to him, but he merely attempted to attack her. She just ma uh, barely manages to teleport away. And then uh, the two of them leave again, and we cut back to Will and Sagramonte. And Sagramonte is basically uh, spinning a tale about uh, how he slayed a dragon once. And we get Hans Conrad's uh, physical performance here, which is really, really funny. I mean, the guy is a really good physical comedian as well. 
with how he does like the different uh, parries and thrusts and that. And Will basically looks on in bemusement before he's asking Sacramonte why he's talking like that. And then he confronts Sacramonte about changing elements of his story because previously he had told him another story about slaying a dragon. Now he's telling him a different uh, version of the story about the same dragon. And he's very uh, disillusioned with the Sacramonte at this moment. Uh, he basically, uh, Sacramonte explains to Will that he has to embellish the story for the benefits of the others. And Will then realizes that he wanted to learn about chivalry and doing good deeds and whatnot, but Sacramonte hasn't helped him. And Will basically quits uh, being Sacramonte's page and he goes back uh, to the Jupiter 2. We then get um, Sacramonte's dog reappearing, and he barks, telling him Gundamar is nearby. But Sacramonte's heart isn't in the chase anymore either, as he decides just to rest again. We yeah. Then, uh, yeah. We then cut back to a Penny leading Gundamar to a cave, which, much to her um, you know, delight, you know, she's like, oh, a cave, how imaginative, things like that. And then, apparently, she's trembling as she's afraid of what might be in the cave with uh, mice, which, again, a really cute joke. And yeah. the fact that she's trying not to seem afraid, despite the fact that when she goes in, she usually like, screams as a fun touch. And as they go deeper into it, we see uh, Dr. Smith hiding behind a rock and spying on them. Uh, Gundamar then decides to basically rest as well, while Penny leaves the cave and Smith creeps out behind her. We then get a really bizarre moment where Gundamar basically breaks the fourth wall. She lifts her head, the suit, uh, you know, it, it looks straight in the camera, and she says that, oh, the cave looks mousy to me, or something like that, before going to sleep I again. I don't believe that was intentionally a fourth wall break moment. I mean, it might have looked like that, but I, I feel like, like the jankiness of the... It was, movie, a, yeah. it was a stupid joke, that. to be honest. Yeah, I feel like it, the reason it does is because the suit is looking like, you know front facing right at the camera I feel like you know if they meant for it to be like you know a mark they would have had her stay on the side if I there it looks like directly into the camera is kind of funny also when we open her mouth I do believe for a few frames you can actually see the suit performer in there so yeah uh, you know quality special effects here people but now we get uh yeah, we get back to the Jupiter 2, and Will is depressed because he feels like he can't trust any more adults and that there's no such thing as heroes or good people in that. And then we get Dr. Smith running back to the ship and tries to tell Robinsons about Gundamar, but of course they don't believe him. We get a really, really funny line from the robot, which, by the way, the robot was really underused in this episode compared to what he usually does. Kind of a shame, because it would have been neat seeing like the robot's reaction to a dragoness, but, oh well. But we get a really good line from him. My memory banks indicate that Dr. Smith is going to pull a fast one. <laughs> Just anytime he knows. He knows. Yeah. yeah, and like anytime the robot like says something like, you know, sarcastic, but in such a technical, you know, like robotic tone, it's always funny. But then uh, yeah. Dr. Smith does his usual thing by making the story more elaborate by uh, adding the amount of monsters. I'm like, you know, ooh, I had to run from five, no, ten monsters. And he tries to seem brave as funny. But then we get something that's interesting. Will basically is uh, standing outside the ship and he stares at Dr. Smith, disappointed in him, like how he was disappointed in Sagramonte. 
And usually Dr. Smith's uh, shtick was that uh, he basically would exaggerate that something was attacking him or, you know, that he was injured in some way to try to get out of doing work and that. But here, Smith actually admits to the Robinsons that it was all a lie, and he goes in the ship to confront Will, who was just so depressed about learning the truth about uh, Sagramonte and uh, all of that. He feels like there's no good in the world or anything like that. And it's here that we do get something really uh, interesting with like character development for Dr. Smith. Now, of course, this character development would not last. By the next episode, he would go back to being the dreaming coward that he always was. But here we get to see Dr. Smith sincerely apologizing to Will and trying to get him mm. to see the good in people and uh, to make him believe in heroes and such like that. And he tells Will uh, not to grow up too fast and that it's not worth it when you do. It's really one of the most understated and honestly probably nicest actions that uh, Dr. Smith ever did on the show. Because usually yeah. he was like the guy who was only out for himself. He was only in it for, you know, uh, to save his own skin in that. But here we he's actually like get... He's like he's kind like... of the reverse of that one doctor from the Flash Gordon TV show we did a while back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He definitely is the opposite of uh, how Dr. Zarkov was depicted on the uh, Flash Gordon cartoon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, I actually have a bit of a working theory for why this episode okay. was as good as it was. Go right ahead. Uh, I think that uh, uh, between uh, uh, Hans Conrad, Sagramonte, June Foray, uh, uh, Dragon. the, the Dragoness, uh, Gundamar, and uh, Jonathan Harris, Dr. Smith, there was sort of, sort of a acting competition between them to see who could put out the best performance, and they just kept trying to one-up each other, and that's why this one was just as good and as hard as it was. Mm. I definitely can see that because, again, you have like three really good actors who are, you know, giving it their all in that. And Billy Moomy does a really good job, too, to be honest. Oh, yeah. As well, especially in this part. And again, he he was a really, really good child actor and actually transitioned to not so much adult acting, uh, but like uh, other things really well. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But he does a really good job as well. And uh, here we get uh, Smith returning to Sagramonte to confront him about the, what the knight thinks his honor and basically what he did to uh, causing Will to lose his innocence. And it's here we get the backstory for Sacramonte, which apparently Sacramonte's people got so advanced with technology, science, and civilization as a whole that they decided to return to the age of knights just so that they wouldn't go stir-crazy. Which, mm. that is some really interesting world-building right there. We get one line, but that is a, an idea that is just something... Really, really interesting, and I feel like if it was a show like Star Trek, they would have probably actually brought them to the planet and to see just how it happened in that, but I feel like this, you get only one line, and it's like, yeah, but I want to know more. I want to know, like, what can these people do, or what did these people do that made them so advanced that they would have to actually go back to an earlier, more civilized age, as Obi-Wan would put it, basically so that they wouldn't go completely crazy. That is very interesting. Honestly, oh man, that's a pretty interesting take on how magic came about or stuff like that. Because, like, you get so advanced that you basically decide, can we go back to the good old days? And then you just do that, which hands down is. Yeah. Oh man, there should be more stories like that. Honestly. Oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. 
I mean, there. I mean, Nimona is pretty much somewhat an example of that, which nice, but well, okay, yeah. maybe not an example of that, but it is a case where like there's still medieval elements, but it's still like super advanced and still modern enough, you know? Exactly. It also reminds me a little like bit Final of Final Fantasy the, in a way, actually. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. It also reminds me a little bit of the uh, Star Trek episode, the classic one, where they go to the planet, and it was all based on, like, 1920s uh, gangsters because someone had left a book behind, and the entire uh, planet decided to take that as their civilization. That was a really classic one. I I can't remember the name of it. Not good with episode title names, but, yeah. It kind of reminds me of that in a way. But yeah, basically, uh, Sacramonte then admits that he lies to everybody, even to himself, and that he doesn't know what chivalry really is, and that he's just going to go home and give up. Now, Dr. Smith then basically tells him to go back to being the brave knight that Will wants him to be. He tells him about uh, Gundamar and her hiding in the cave, and then uh, Sacramonte decides to go and fight the dragoness at dawn. Smith then returns back to the Jupiter 2, and he tells Will about Sacramonte and Gundamar. But Will, because Dr. Smith lied so many, many, many times in the past, Will doesn't believe him, but Dr. Smith tries basically pleading with him that he's telling the truth. Will then basically uh, begrudgingly agrees to go with him at dawn, and Penny then sneaks out to try and warn Gundamar, having heard of the conversation. And Gundamar then mentions that she basically has to run, but she can't. Because she's afraid that uh, she she's afraid that you know she can't do it anymore, and that she'll give Sacramonte what he has always wanted, which of course is her head. And again, the fact that she's willing to sacrifice herself is something that is just really noble and really makes the character uh, stand out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's it like make willing her stand to ultimate- out. Yeah, she's willing to like put herself through this either because she wants a friend, she wants to get laid, or just because. It's something that she feels like doing because she's a kind of person who's putting others before herself. Exactly, exactly. As and actually insane as some of these episodes get, this has a really good message. Oh, it definitely does. Lost in Space, it wasn't a bad show. It was a very strange show, especially in season three and what season four would have been if it was made, which, again, I, I got to tell you guys about this in a little bit because it is insane, some of the stuff they had planned. But yeah, basically in this episode, getting back to this, when morning comes, Will and Dr. Smith wait by the cave as Sagramonte shows up in full knight armor. Gundamar roars as a stream of flame emits from the cavern. And then Sagramonte arrives to a clearing as Gundamar leaves the cave with like purple smoke billowing out of her nostrils, which again, is an effect that, how did they do that? Especially with the fact that it looks like an ordinary costume. Like, like there is no way they could have done that, but it's like, how? How did they do that effect? What really amazed me is they had the smoke, they had her breathing fire, they had all of this amazing looking stuff, and then their duel is literally just them walking next to each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And <laughs> Why are we jousting? <laughs> exactly. Is that, it's clear from like watching the footage, too, that the suit actor that's playing Gundamar they can't see a thing because they're, they're visibly stumbling around. They like, like I think they like a misdirection at one point. It's like, it's clear the guy who uh, was the suit actor for Gundamar uh, had no idea what they were doing because obviously they was never directed. 
Exactly. It's like they basically put him in front of a camera, okay, and said, okay, you're going to run uh, where you think the night is. Go. And it's like, well, how could he see in a suit like that? But yeah, uh, Will is frightened, and he basically tries to help Sagramonte while Penny runs in to help Gundamar. And it's here we get the Sacramonte learns that Gundamar is a female, and she gets another good laugh because she's just so businesslike about everything. And Sagramonte is just completely stunned silent by this. And Gundamar gets another good laugh where she basically says, though, oh, isn't that like a man? <laughs> Again, it's something that, you know, June Foray's uh, delivering on that line. It really does sell it. So basically, basically for 40 years, what uh, what are you going to do now? I hadn't really thought about that far ahead. Exactly, exactly. And like, yeah, she asked basically what he was going to do. And he was like the guy who never really thought ahead. And it turns out they traveled through uh, eight stars. It's all over again. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I don't know. Penny... I never thought I'd get this far. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly like that. Exactly. Oh, man. I, yeah, he's like, classic. I have it. Now what do I do? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So then Penny then basically asks them, why don't they just teleport to their home planets? But of course, Sacramonte doesn't know how. And then it turns out that Gundamar is the reason why Sacramonte teleported. And it's revealed that she treats it more of a game than anything else, which, okay, this comes completely out of nowhere. And to me, it is at odds with how she was depicted earlier. But she was like weary and tired of being chased down. But now to her, it was like a game. It's like, it felt like they had two script ideas and they were running out of time. So Erwin Allen was like, ah, screw it. Just smash them together. Just put that one in with this one. It doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. Okay, but yeah, devil's, again, a, devil's advocate here for a ahead, second. But I feel like because uh, because both the uh, Robinson uh, freaking uh, – because of the Will family and whatnot, uh, I, they both, both basically uh, – oh, man. Uh, trying to compose my thoughts here. Okay. So basically – because of this family pretty much getting in getting involved and pretty much hearing their sides and ultimately you know bringing them together as a result to try and ultimately bring back wonder honor and all that stuff it uh, it ultimately sparks back what why they ultimately did it to begin with because that because let's think about it you've been doing it for years and you ultimately forget why you're doing it in the first place and then it comes back and it's like, oh hey, it was this. And honestly, maybe and maybe it does. And here, it doesn't really state the same reason, but it ultimately, uh, now that they understand each other, they decide to uh, humor each other because th that's ultimately what a kind person would ultimately do. You know, it, it reminds me of Kite from uh, freaking uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! Zexel. He basically did dueling as a job, not necessarily as like, say, uh, for fun or because it was like, you know, a way of life. Then Yuma pretty much duels him and pretty much reconvinces him of what uh, dueling can be in spite of, you know, being just a job or like a chore. You that know, very, very good point there. Wow. I, I did not consider that before, but wow, that, that is actually a really, really good point. And yeah, basically what happens is Sagramonte basically, uh, 
basically uh, has given up on life and everything. He feels that everything he did is pointless. And Penny tells Gundamar that she has to keep on uh, having Sargamante chase her to keep his spirits up. And Gundamar agrees. She basically runs around Sargamante and uh, playfully teases him in a cute moment, which causes... Yeah, she totally, a... yeah, she totally Sorry, wants to get laid. <laughs> that too, that too. But yeah, basically uh, what happens is uh, Sarkamante then gets a second wind as he vows to keep on chasing her uh, for all time. The two yeah. of them then uh, teleport out in another explosion with Sarkamante's dog uh, following. And the episode ends with Dr. Smith telling the two of them that it's basically not about the destination, but the journey that counts. It wasn't about the hunt at all, but it was about... Uh, the experience of it all that uh, was what really mattered to Sagramonte and Gundamar, which again, to have Dr. Smith give the lesson like this, again, really, really uh, out of nowhere in that. Indeed. Especially again for his character, who would not be like this on the show for quite some time. And the episode uh, ends, like most Lost in Space episode ends, with a, a preview for next week's episode, where Will, Dr. Smith, and the robot... Basically, uh, they stumble across an uh, Android machine, which was, of course, a device that gave them an Android from a previous episode. And the Android machine was uh, owned by, a, what's his name? The Celestial Department Store owner, who's played by uh, Fritz Feld. Fritz Feld was another one of those guys who, if you know, like, uh, snooty waiters or, like, snooty maitre d's or stuff like that, he's the guy who basically perfected that kind of character archetype, you know? He would his big comedic thing is that he would do like a pop with his mouth and that you know he'd do like hmm. that with his mouth and again this nice. guy had like a fifty year long career of playing one type of character. See so yeah, what hmm. happens? That's actually is, really like, cool. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, uh, basically what happens? We get to hear the robot's famous warning, warning, danger. Will Robinson cry as he tells him that the machine is dangerous. Will basically fiddles with the buttons before the machine starts to shake and smoke before it seemingly explodes. And the episode ends with to be continued uh, next same time, uh, same week, same channel kind of thing, which every episode ended like this. And uh, mm. it basically calls back, I guess, to the Flash Gordon serials where it would always end with, like, something happening with the heroes, but then the next episode would be like, oh, they got out of it just fine, or, oh, it wasn't nearly as bad as what had happened. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, Lost they usually do that. It's just to yeah. bait you into it. But yeah, it kind of. It, well, like, they did it well. What's gonna happen? What's this exactly, thing? Exactly. It's all right for yeah. what it is. But yeah, Lost in Space would last for three seasons, with season three being a mixture of serious sci-fi and completely ridiculous. The episode The uh, Great Vegetable Rebellion was so terrible that Guy Williams apparently threatened to quit over it. Oh, dang. Oh, uh, yeah. Season four was in development, and there are scripts that have been leaked out that shows it would have gone absolutely insane. The Robinsons oh, I don't doubt would have it. been in a family, would have had a new member of the family. A talking llama named Willoughby. I oh, kid you boy. not. Yes, that was going to be on season four of Lost in Space. That's that's too out there, even for Lost in Space. Yeah, but what well, happened? Lost in Space was the Emperor's New Groove before the Emperor's New Groove was. Oh, so, actually, oh. now that you mention it, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, but season four was canceled because of the movie Cleopatra. 
that movie was such a huge box office bomb that 20th Century Fox had basically cut out every little bit of a uh, thing that was making uh, extra money and Lost in Space is one of those casualties. Oh, wait. Wait, I just realized something. Yeah. Lost in Space was 20th Century Fox, right? Yeah, that's oh, no, Disney now owns it. Technically, <laughs> technically yeah. I guess, yeah. yeah. I, be, I guess, I technically, know. yeah. But but wait, do they? Because Netflix did the did the uh, remake. So oh, that's I, I true. So yeah, maybe the rights are switched uh, over. But yeah, maybe. Lost in Space would uh, get a 1998 uh, feature film that pretty much uh, brought back most of the cast for cameos. The only ones that didn't was uh, Billy Moomy, who was uh, busy with other projects, and Jonathan Harris, who hated the script so much he went on talk shows to anti-promote the movie and that he would go on talk shows and tell people not to go see the lost in space movie oh man that was yeah. rough yeah but then we got the uh, remake series on netflix which is probably how most people know of the franchise lost in space and the thing that is so weird is it is nothing like the original at all it is like so far removed from this type of show it is insane it, I think it's it too dramatic. I I watched a, an episode and it's just yeah yeah right. it kind of fell apart. I think too. I think the best comparison. Hey kids, do you like this happy peppy cheery show? Well, let me introduce you to Grimdark. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, basically, I think the best way I can comparison to it is that uh, it's like if the Batman with Robert Patterson was a direct uh, sequel to Adam West's Batman. It's like. You have two different tones, and they don't fit at all, you know? Oh, it's the yeah. the same characters, it's the same setting, it's the same uh, things, but it doesn't fit at all. One thing that was cute, I will say this, is that in the first episode, the uh, Dr. Smith that was basically uh, killed and replaced by the woman was played by Billy Moomy. That, that is a cute touch right there. Oh. But it actually was Billy Moomy in a cameo doing it. But, yeah. Okay, that is nice. Yeah. That is but nice. What, what happened with him is he would continue to act and record music for many years. He was a uh, part of the novelty group Barnes and Barnes, probably best known for their song "Fish Heads." Oh, you... that song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they he did that song, but yeah, of course. And his daughter is a voice actress as well. And yeah, like I say, Lost in Space is one of those shows where it's clear it was never going to be as big as Star Trek because I feel like overall, if you really like put them like apples to oranges. Star Trek, even the original Star Trek wins series, every time. Is a, better, is a like. way better show. Better written, better acted, better uh, effects. Though sometimes the effects on Star Trek original can be pretty bad. But mm-hmm. at least I feel like the thing is, is I feel like Star Trek always had a bit of a you know dignity to it. Whereas Lost in Space went straight for the uh, screwball stuff after a little while trying to uh, do the same kind of level of seriousness. Oh yeah, but, absolutely. Yep. But yep, now, uh, speaking of uh, classic television, it's time for the question of the episode, which is, what is your favorite classic TV show? And I have a lot that I could answer with. I mean, I really like, uh, you know, classic comedies like I Love Lucy and, you know, The Honeymooners. They have, like, uh, shows like Columbo and Dallas are really, really great. But I think problem with favorite... that is, yeah, problem with that, uh, a quick disclaimer before we go into right. that. Well, the the rules for this are stuff from the 1960s to the 1990s for all of those viewing at home. Yeah, or or like 50s as well. 50s could count as well. Like okay. that could be another Late kind of 50s, thing. Yeah, yeah. So I'd say that my uh, probably favorite one of them 
in terms of like uh, i probably have to do it in two things so like with comedy for comedy for me i feel like the best classic tv show is one that a lot of people know especially in like i think like the in the uk and that but don't really talk about is the phil silver show aka sergeant bilko this show was so well written and phil Silvers is just such an amazing talented comedian that this show everything on it worked absolutely perfectly it's one of those shows where nothing could have been changed they could have probably made five more seasons and the quality would have been just as good as the four that we got it is funny it has some really innovative episodes especially with the time period and it's a show that really i don't think has aged that much in the in the time that it's aired to now and of all honesty a show that's nearly like 70 years old is still really as fresh as the day it came out and huh. as for my favorite, uh, more dramatic show, I'm going to have to go with uh, Columbo, believe it or not, because Columbo, again, is a show that it really, really is so great. Peter Falk is an absolute legend. Everything with it really just clicked into place perfectly. The later episodes that they did in like the 70s and 80s, kind of uh, uh, the 80s and 90s, rather. They weren't as good, unfortunately, but I feel like the ones he did in the 70s were just so good, you can actually discount the later ones because, again, it just works out so, so good. I mean, Peter Falk is an absolute legend, and I'm kind of glad that it's getting its due online. Like, a lot of uh, it's becoming, like, meme on Twitter and that, and, you know, people are watching it and getting into it. I'm really happy to see that because it really is just a fantastic TV show all around. And those nice. are probably going to be my uh, two picks: the uh, the Phil Silver Show and uh, Columbo. Oh. So, uh, and Grom, what would you have to say? Ah, uh, that is a tough one because there are three that come to mind when I think classic and TV shows. One of which is going to be excluded because that show is Astro Boy, and that came out around the 1940s or 50s or so, right around the era where. Uh, Toy was coming into its own, as it were. Fun, yeah. And to and for uh, a little anime fact for those of you at home, uh, Toy also made uh, Transformers and Voltron. So yep, they did. <laughs> nice, nice, absolutely. But anyways, for the shows that actually count, two come to mind, but um, that is going to be a tough one. However. Here is ultimately uh, my uh, deciding factor between the two. While one I saw more recently, uh, even uh, the other has been around since my childhood and just barely skirts the line between uh, between being a '90s show because it debuted in the '90s but lasted until like 2002 or so. Uh, so I was going to say the Wuzzles because, come on, man, there's, it's honestly a classic show and there's a reason it got, uh, Toon Disney's start as, like, the cemented Disney channel, as it were. It's got charm, it's got Hoppo, it's got, uh, it's got stellar <laughs> animation at times, it's got Hoppo, it's got amazing characters that are pretty divisive, save for... Fluttershy 2.0 in the form of Butterbear, but she's still all right. And did I mention Hoppo already? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, man. Man. She is best girl. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah she is. She is the multi character of that show, hands down. Like sometimes she can be dainty, she can be kick ass, she can be the straight person, she can be a little goofy sometimes. Like uh, man, the person who voiced her really, you know, neat. That person should really get a lot more attention. I forget her voice actress. Actually, give me a sec to uh, yeah, you know what? I'll do it while I'm talking. <laughs> But anyways, oh, the real number, the real number, oh, go uh, ahead. It, the real one that is absolutely my favorite class. Oh, right. Duh. I nearly forgot this one. Oh. There are actually two classic shows that I, okay, you know what? I'm actually going to change mine because I was going to say Dragon Tales because it stuck with me as a child and it skirts the line nearly bordering into, uh, you know, being basically a uh, an early 2000s, late 90s show, as it were. However, I just realized uh, that there is another pick that I grew up with alongside Dragon Tales, if not oh. a little more. Also, the voice actor for Hoppo, Joanne Worley, I hope you're listening in on this. Love your show. Love the character. You need a lot more appreciation, hands down. But anyways, my mm-hmm. actual pick... Robotech started oh. in the started in I think the seventies or eighties. It initially started as a book series, interestingly enough, or maybe the series came first. But anyways, Robotech, hands down. Uh, I, there are two, there are three overall separating series that can basically be uh, classified as per se seasons, as it were, but. Uh, the two that I'm gonna, the two that I ultimately grew up with were uh, season one of Robotech and season three of Robotech. Robo, the Robotech, the Macross saga, and the Robotech invasion. Oh uh, yeah, saga. wasn't wasn't Robotech actually two different shows in one? Three different shows in one, technically. Oh, uh, right. With the middle, with the middle show basically being like the sequel series to uh, the first Robotech. Well, but yeah, uh, just there's just so much uh, to this show. Like, I, I grew up with the games first, namely Robotech Battlecry and Robotech Invasion, and those were fun games. Uh, one of which w- uh, had a studio who made Transformers Fall of Cybertron as well. But man, Robotech was oh man! Every time I hear that uh, theme song, I get nostalgic for a bit, and then I hear a certain part that I'm a little indifferent about. But I absolutely love it. It is by and large my favorite classic show. And I'm sorry to the Wuzzles for being a more recent pick, being too recent for me to put on this list. And I'm sorry for Dragon Tales for skirting the line enough. But I'm sorry, it just has to be Robotech. It's one of the few anime that I've seen that I absolutely enjoy. And honestly, uh, I would say Dragon Ball, but I, honestly, I would uh, give mention to Dragon Ball, but that's a little too recent as well. So, yeah, that's going to be my pick. Nice. That, that, that's, uh, yeah. yeah. Awesome pick right there. So, um, Striker, what do you have to say? Well, since some um, anime does count, I'll say right now. <laughs> Uh, Dragon Ball. The nice. Classic. Yeah. But yeah. Then, classic, uh, classic. But then my actual choice would be, um, well, 
I have two, actually. Oh, boy. Oh, there we go. The first one being Doctor Who. Woohoo! Nice. Nice, nice. The original from the 60s. Uh, nice. And then, of course, um, we got... Uh, then we got Star Trek. Nice. Which is one yeah. of my all-time favorite shows, like, ever. Because, like, I can understand why. Oh, man. Oh, I also wanted to mention Mighty Ducks, but anyways. I mean, I grew up with a lot of Disney afternoon shows, too. Like, um... Same. Uh, DuckTales, mainly. Nice. I kind of nice, did, too. awesome. Anyway, um... Yeah, my pick would have to be between uh, Doctor Who and uh, uh, Star Trek, the original nice. series. That is so, solid. Really excellent uh, picks right there. Oh, yeah, of course. So, um, Math, what would you have to say is your favorite uh, classic TV show? I'm the animation guy, so the... Expected stuff from me would be stuff like uh, Flintstones, Jetsons, or DuckTales. I'm actually going to uh, say this show, because this is more honestly what my favorite all-time classic show is. And quite frankly, it's a lot more animated than uh, uh, most animated shows of the day. I love Lucy. Yes, yes, Lucy absolutely holds up. Lucille Ball is a fucking genius. There is no way to talk around that. Some of the I Love Lucy bits are still the most iconic comedy bits in uh, television history. You've got the mirror bit with Harpo Marx. Uh, You've got uh, the Chocolate Factory. My absolute favorite, Vitamita Vegemin. Exactly. (laughs) Classic. Classic right there. And again, I Love Lucy was another show like uh, the Phil Silver show that it never got bad. Never. It was a show that maintained its level of quality throughout the entire, I feel, uh, run of it. It's because Lucille Ball and to a much uh, more underrated extent, Desi Arnaz are just geniuses of the craft and they never lost their talent. Yeah. Fucking then, amazing uh, absolutely incredible. honestly. Yeah, absolutely incredible. And I think that's amazing too is Vivian Vance and William Frawley as, you know, Fred, as, you know, Ethel and Fred, of course, they do a great job. But yet, behind the scenes, they absolutely hated each other. But yet, you would yeah. not be able to tell uh, with the, how they behave on the actual show. A lot of apparently, like there uh, was this weird thing in Hollywood back then called professionalism. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. The where did professionalism go? Everyone's so sensitive these days. Money. Shame. Ah, that too. Shame. That too. Shame. Shame. But no, that that is an excellent, like, perfect pick right there. Really, really, really good one. So, um, Jordan, what would you have to say is your uh, favorite classic Wait, TV? Wasn't show? I Love Lucy like nineteen forties or something? Fifties, fifties. I think like uh fifty five. I want to say fifty. Uh, 50, it, no, counts, it counts because it was in the sixties as yeah, well. Yeah, it counts. It ran okay. a, a long time. Okay. So uh, it was fifty one. Well, I was. It's that, like, Born in the nineties, well ninety three area. Mm-hmm. I grew up with pretty good with some good classic cartoons and TV shows like the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. I grew up watching that and Pokemon. 
Pokemon, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. Ooh, it's nice. gonna be a hard choice. Go ahead. It's Pokemon. Nope, you're wrong. It's probably gonna be Power Rangers. Interesting. That checks okay. Out. Nice, nice. I mean, it was it was made in the '93 area, and there were other good TV shows and cartoon shows besides Pokemon. There was Digimon. There was Nickelodeon. There was Cartoon Network. All of those were pretty good back in the days. And there was even RoboCop back in '90s in the '90s too. Nice. The classic cartoon after the live action movies and the TV shows. So I'm going to just go with Mighty Morphin Power Rangers because I grew up around that area. Nice. Yeah, that's a great choice right there. So, uh, Lucky Eevee, what do you have to say? I don't really remember watching anything from those times, but I am interested in, like, Transformers. Nice. I adore I adore Transformers as well. Like, Transformers yeah. was fun. Like this yeah, is def- this is channel I subscribe to on YouTube that's basically just a, a database for Transformers stuff. Nice. Nice, nice. Yeah, like I, I say, I can I, I can link you in with Dunio. Yep. So yep, now it is time for the uh Dragonist scale where we uh basically uh, rank the Dragonist. And this is gonna be a very interesting one because uh Gundamar again the actual design of the character is not very good. The suit is very poorly made. It's, it, was. it doesn't even articulate very well. You can tell that the guy in the suit can't even see a, a thing where he's going. Almost remind, yeah. It almost reminds me of the suit from Godzilla. It, it, <laughs> it does, except the Godzilla suit actors had more, I think, uh, visibility than this, believe it or not. It, Wait a they, minute. Wait, what you, which one are you talking about? Which Godzilla? The original. The, the, oh, the, the oh, Heisei, uh, not the Heisei series, sorry, the Shower Era series. Oh, I see. But yeah, uh, I think that, though, June Foray's performance and the way that she's written as a character, discounting the ending, which comes out of nowhere and is really rushed and kind of knocks her down a few points, but yet June Foray's performance is so good. It's almost too yep. good for the character. It really, really is. So I am going to give her maybe a little bit too high of a score, but I really can't see myself giving uh, just just because, again, June Foray is an absolute legend and she really gives this uh, character so much character. I'm going to give her a seven out of ten, believe it or not. Oh, I see. And a lot of it is really just based solely on June Foray's performance and how good she is. As like this character giving her like a you know elegance to her and like a world weariness to her and even like the playful nature at the end it all works out so so well but yet the problem is is actually no I'm I'm just gonna change my mind I'm gonna bump it down to six and the reason being mm. is it's just the costume this costume yeah. is just it's too it's distracting a, yeah it is. it's so bad it really really is. This thing, I mean, again, you could say, oh, 1967 television, how, how good could they do? But I don't know. There were ways you could have done this and had it turn out a little bit better. But yeah, so I, I'm afraid I'm actually going to bump it down from seven to six. But yeah. So, Angron, what would you give her? I am going to have to give her... Okay. The character is pretty nice. The suit's not, it's distracting, but it's not distracting to the point where it ultimately took me out of the immersion too much. It's definitely cheap, but 
I've seen worse for the most part. And honestly, uh, the the overall story that she's in, it's pretty good. It's uh, it's, it's lost in space isn't exactly my cup of tea, but it it's definitely not the worst thing out there. So I am going to be a little generous and give her a seven seven out of ten. Yeah, I can see why you, you would. Uh, yeah. Why one would? Yeah. So what would you have to give her a striker? Uh I'm giving her a six, like you, because like the, the the costume was distracting. But honestly, the character. In fact, you know what? No, I'm giving her a seven because I thought uh, her her character was really good. It was almost endearing at times. Yeah, I definitely. Uh, yeah, I can definitely see why. So, uh, Math, what would you have to give her? I gotta give it a six. Like, it is purely based on that outfit. It is just so bad. And th- there's no excuse for it, too. Uh, the the Dragoness from uh, Sword and Dragon, that movie came out uh, a decade earlier, and it looks so much better than this schlop. It is insulting how bad the outfit looks. Now, the effects are actually pretty good, and that, that almost bumped up to a 7. If it weren't for the outfit, just basically being negative points uh but it's it uh what really saves it as has been said is it's june foray have june foray will watch yeah exactly (laughs) a little thing that uh this just my little headcanon for this uh while i think that uh angron's uh idea of what the characterization is might actually be correct uh because to me it also does feel like they just didn't know how to end it. It feels like uh, it feels like uh, the dragoness is a bit of a, a secret sundere. Uh. Oh, it's not that I want you to chase me, Bubba Baka. <laughs> oh God! Now I'm imagining June Ferreira's Gundamar saying that. <laughs> nice. Oh, God, nice. Nice. I'm sorry. I don't know why, but you. I can see her doing that. Thank you so much for that. That was <laughs> okay. Uh, Jordan, what would you have to give uh, Gundamar? After doing a scan, I did see a little bit of what's going on. I'm like, okay, I want to see what this dragon looked like. I see her, and I'm like, what am I looking at? It looks yep. like something from a Power Ranger that just went wrong. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, definitely. That's being generous. Yeah, but definitely. as yeah. I hear more about her personality, I'm like, okay, she's like a child. She's playing a game with this knight. So I'll give her I'll give her personality an eight an eight, but her costume is just like if it wasn't for the costume, she'd be a lot more better to like, but I'm like, I'm gonna give her a six. Cause it's just like it just takes away like why you could have done maybe a little bit better, maybe from the money budget. I get it, but I'm like, no, I'm giving her a six. Mm. Yeah, no, I definitely, definitely get where you're coming from there. And uh, Lucky Evie, what do you have to give her? Oh, this only is a suit design. <laughs> yeah, suit it definitely design. is. It definitely is. Oh, it yeah. looks like you. It looks like whoever made this decided to mash every type of dragon into one suit. <laughs> I can yeah, see why. Um, yeah, definitely. That's it. Like five. Yeah, okay. I'm gonna yeah i think i might have to change mine to an honest six out of ten 
Character's right. great. The suit. Okay, you know what? Now nah, I'm gonna keep it at seven. Never mind. Leave, leave it at seven. Okay, it's all good. It's all good. So uh, yeah, that pretty much uh, wraps it up for this week. If you have any questions, or if you if if you would like to send us your impression of Doctor Smith, you can <laughs> feel free to email us at fierydiscourse at outlook dot com or visit us on Twitter at twitter dot com slash fierydiscourse. Next time we'll be talking about the two thousand and seven movie Dragon Wars, aka D Wars, from South Korea. Until then, take care and have a wonderful two twenty four and a happy new year. Oh yeah, this. I am very surprised to see what that movie has in store. That's going to be a really, really interesting one. Yep. So, yeah, until then, thank you guys so much for watching. And until next week, adios, and thank you so much for listening. Yep. Happy New Year, Bye. everyone. Happy New Year. Uh, peace out. Yep. Adios. Later.